0: Well, I want us to think about this morning, just as we begin, to, to think about what the, what the task of a table servant is. So what is the task of a table servant? So some of you may have been waiters or waitresses in different places at different times. but And, and depending on where you're at, that's, uh, the, the task sometimes looks different, job description. But, but generally you have one main thing to do. Right, it's you bring the food to the table. right? You've got to get the food from the chef to the table without messing it up, right? without tripping. Or, um, yeah, you, you'd think that there would be some complications that would happen if the table servant, four or five-star restaurant where the chef takes great joy and pleasure, pride in the the meal that he prepares well if this servant takes the meal and delivers it and as he sets it on the table he pulls some extra spices out of his pocket and starts kind of dabbling and mixing with the ingredients you probably see that that table servant's job would not last very long he i can guarantee you he would not stay at that restaurant very long and on top of that the servant as well would be doing a dishonor to the chef and saying what the chef has provided for these people is insufficient. It's not good enough. We need to improve it. We need to make it better. Add some of my, my own things, my own ingredients to what is prepared for you, what is given to you. Well, in many ways, Christians are called to be like table servants. We are given a message. We're given the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to take that message and to get it to the people without adding to or taking away from it. We are to get it to the people unpolluted, undiluted, we are to get it in the same way that we received it. And this is something that we see in the book of Galatians. The, the church in Galatia is experiencing something of the very same thing. What has happened in Galatia is that Paul and Barnabas have come. They've come from Antioch and they've preached the good news of Jesus Christ to this church. And the people have responded to this good news of Jesus Christ by faith and repentance and believing in him and they've received the spirit of God and so this church at Galatia has been rejoicing in the good news of Jesus Christ they have become a church well what happens after Paul and Barnabas leave for a short time is that some bad guys they come in and they start to say now listen Paul and Barnabas, they gave you some good stuff. This, this, this truth about Jesus Messiah, that's good and that's right, that's, that's, that's good. But you need to add to that faith, add to that belief in Jesus Christ, the works of the law. The Mosaic law. You need to not just have faith in Jesus, but you need to become like a Jew. In order to be in right standing before God. So, Paul gets wind of this and he writes what we have here today. He writes the letter of Galatians. And we see for Paul that this is very serious. We know right out of the gate from the tone of the book of Galatians, Paul is angry. He's angry that somebody would mess with the gospel, that they would add to the good news of Jesus Christ. He writes, he begins, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, deserting Jesus who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so right away, we know that Paul thinks that adding to something of the gospel that he has proclaimed is a serious offense, not just a serious offense, but an abandonment of the God who has given the gospel to Paul. Which is why he says in verse 11 of chapter 1 For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying here in verse 11 that my gospel is not man's gospel, my gospel is God's gospel. That's his thesis statement. And then the rest, really, of chapter 1 and 2 sort of circle around that idea that this is God's gospel, that he has entrusted to me, and that you believed, and these people are messing it up. And so to support this thesis statement that he has, he sort of goes through three phases. He talks about his conversion, how he was once a Pharisee, and how he was persecuting the church, and then God converted him. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, turns him around, and he sees Christ for who he is, and he has faith in the risen one, and stops trusting in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. And then he talks about his two trips to Jerusalem, where he goes and he meets with the other apostles, and they don't add anything to the message that he believed in the message that he was teaching. So those are the two things. And then the third thing that he uses to support this thesis statement is a story about the way that he rebukes Peter in Antioch. And that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to find ourselves as Paul is talking to Peter and rebuking him. So sort of the situation that's gone down in Antioch is that Peter has come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and initially, whenever Peter gets there, there's a mixed congregation of both Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus Christ. Well, initially, Peter has no problem of associating and fellowshipping with and having table meals with other Gentiles. He's probably eating unclean foods that were initially unclean, but now God has declared clean. And he's spending fellowship with those who aren't abiding by the works of the law, the Mosaic law, like circumcision. But then you have pe- people, the Judaizers, who come in, and out of fear of them, out of fear of thinking what they might think of him, he withdraws fellowship. And so Paul sees this, and he sees this as a violation And an adulteration in Peter's actions of the truth of the gospel. So our passage this morning, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, we find ourselves in the words that Paul is telling Peter. We're finding ourselves in the middle of the rebuke. So let's listen in. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Paul says, Peter... We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now these words are a record of what Paul thinks Peter needs to hear in this situation. And so this sort of begs the question of why does Paul take this record of the things that have happened and think that it's important for the Galatian Christians to hear the same thing. And what the answer is, is that in the same way, so Paul sees that in the same way that Peter implicitly stresses faith in Christ plus works of the law by his actions, is the same thing that the Judaizers are doing in teaching explicitly Faith in Christ plus works the law to be justified. Okay, so he lays these things side by side and says that they need the same argument and they need the same solution. So one commentator puts it this way. He says that Paul wants to lay this situation in Antioch alongside the situation in Galatia to see that the crises are parallel and that the true solution is the same in both cases. So that's why we have what we have here. In these words to Peter, then, what Paul does is he communicates the solution to the problem of the Galatian churches adding to the gospel. And he actually defines and gives us, really, the content of the gospel, So throughout this whole letter so far up to chapter 2 he has been talking about the importance of the gospel of getting right the gospel that the gospel was given to him but he has never really clearly defined what the gospel is. And so what he does here is he points to how justification by faith alone is essential to getting the gospel right. So the main idea This morning, the main idea that we're going to be thinking about that I think summarizes our passage is this. Adding to justification by faith alone distorts the gospel, divides the church, discounts God's grace, and diminishes Christ's work. I'm going to say that again. Adding to justification by faith alone distorts the gospel, divides the church, discounts God's grace, and diminishes Christ's work. So we're not going to be going through all all of those uh, parts that are in the main idea, but I think we're going to see that they're woven throughout as we work our way through this passage. So point number one, justification is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. Verse 15, we see what Paul says to Peter. He says, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, Peter, you and I, we have a lot of good things going for us. We grew up with moral restraint, we grew up knowing the law of Moses, we grew up unlike the rest of the Gentiles. So whenever Paul says these Gentile sinners, that term is basically used to refer to to not just someone who is not a Jew, though that's certainly true, but it's to refer to somebody who has grown up without any sort of moral restraint. So most of these Gentiles would have been uh, partakers in, in other idol worship, and most of this idol worship contains sexual immorality. And so he's saying that 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 Peter, we aren't like those other people who grew up with moral restraint. We were raised in the covenant. We were raised looking to Jehovah God. We were raised with the word of God. We were raised in in the covenants within God's nation to which every Jew would say amen. Yes, that's right. That's where we were raised. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul goes on. He continues with a word that puts this Jewishness, this this privilege, in perspective. Verse 16. Yet, yet, contrast, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, also have been just, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, being Jewish does not contribute in any way to your standing before God, to your being righteous in his sight. He's saying that has nothing to do with it. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk about what this word justified means. So if we're going to get this passage right, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying, we need to know what he means whenever he says justified. That word justified, simply put, means this, being declared righteous by God in his sight. It is a declaration of God that you are righteous in my sight. Okay, so, so this harkens back to what the Jews understood. This has a courtroom-type setting where the judge would stand and eventually pronounce, after hearing the case, whether somebody was guilty or innocent. So that's the same idea that we have here with this word justification. And so what Paul is saying, that Is that obeying the law of Moses does not contribute in any way whatsoever to God's declaring you as righteous in my sight? It has nothing to do with it. He's saying that the thing that can save you here is faith alone in the work of Christ faith in Christ, not works of the law, faith in Christ. And so the question that Paul then is asking is so, is is Peter, if you believe these things, if you believe these things, that faith alone is what makes us right in the sight of God, why in the world are you acting in the way that you have? Why in the world are, are you withdrawing fellowship from other people who are Gentiles, who are in right standing with God? Why in the world, Peter, or why in the world, Galatians, would you put up with a doctrine that you must add to justification by faith alone? Why are you putting up with that? Or why Christians? Do you withhold fellowship from other Christians whenever it comes to a matter of homeschooling or preschooling? Why is it, Christians, that you would withhold fellowship from somebody simply because they're male or female, or simply because they're in a different stage of life than you are? Why is it, Christians, that you get worried about whenever you're seen with another believer who's not in your same tax bracket? Why do you get fearful of what other people think whenever you're with other believers who may not be of the same culture as you are or the same skin color as you are? Or maybe they're louder than you. Or maybe they wear different clothes than you do. Why do you withhold fellowship? Why do you withhold fellowship from Christians who eat at McDonald's whenever you like paleo? Y'all, we can do this all day long. What happens whenever humans disregard justification by faith alone, as far as our right standing with God, we then start to look at other people with contempt. We start to look at them as either not qualified to be in fellowship or just second-rate Christians. And you can see how quickly this starts to divide a church whenever everybody is just filled with one upmanship of, oh, well, we do this better. And we're coming up with these man-made standards of dividing fellowship. So we see that a neglect of the justification by faith alone divides the church. Justification is by faith alone, and adding to it distorts the gospel and divides the church. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, as Christ, then a servant of sin, well, certainly not. Okay, so things, Paul gets a little bit tricky, so so stay with me here, because these next few verses are, are harder to interpret. But Paul is anticipating here an an objection that the Jews who are hearing his argument might have. Okay, Paul is anticipating what their objection might be. And these Jews might say, well, if it's by faith alone, and if it's not by works of the law, and all you need in order to be justified, declared righteous in God's sight, is just faith in him, And there's no more law holding back immorality. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Is he facilitating people's sin because of their unrighteousness? And Paul says, no, he isn't. And here's why. Paul gives the explanation in verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It gets a little bit tricky, so so lock in here. In order to understand this rightly, we need to go back a few verses. Okay, so go back to verse 14. We're going to see that Paul says something of the same thing here. Paul says this to Peter, about Peter. He says in verse 14, But whenever I saw that their conduct, referring to Peter, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So in other words, Peter, if you have received from God absolute revelation to rise, to kill, and to eat, and that those foods are no longer declared as unclean, and if Peter, if you were told to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and to share the gospel with him, and to enjoy a meal with him, to extend table fellowship with him. And you see the Spirit descend on Cornelius because of his faith alone in Jesus Christ. Paul, you're acting like a Gentile there because you are extending fellowship and enjoying fellowship with Gentiles. And in the same way, he does the same thing in Galatians. And and Paul, Paul is saying to Peter... Why then are you all of a sudden acting hypocritically in telling the Gentiles that they need to become like Jews? Were you not living like a Jew, a Gentile yourself? <clears throat> so verse 18, what he's talking about then, whenever he talks about rebuilding what was torn down, Paul is referring to rebuilding or reinstating adherence to the law of Moses, saying that somebody needs to become, like a Jew, to be justified. And Paul says that if I do that, I'm not going to do that, but if I did do that, then I myself would prove to be a sinner. Paul's answer to people living before God in a holy way is not to reinstate the Mosaic law. Why? Why would Paul himself become a sinner if he were to reinstate or to rebuild what was torn down by Jesus? Well, the answer comes in verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So another one. It's a little bit more difficult to understand, but let's look, just look simply at the conclusion of the verse. Right, so the conclusion is clear. He says that this happens so that I might live to God. So for whatever through the law I doubted the law means, the purpose is that he might live unto God, live in obedience to God, live in a pleasing manner in God's sight. So Paul is saying that the only one who is able to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight is the one who has died to the law. The one who has died to the law. The one who is justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So Peter, what Paul would say to Peter, the law can't justify you. It can't even sanctify you. In fact, it has nothing to do with your right standing in God's sight. But what does give you right standing in God's sight is faith in Jesus Christ alone justification then is always by faith alone now what is the beginning then so we're in verse 19 what does the beginning of verse 19 mean he says for through the law I died to the law There's a little bit of debate on this, on quite, yeah, what exactly this means, but but I think that what Paul is saying here and what we can infer from other books like Romans whenever he talks about his relationship with the law, in what Paul is talking about here, in his through the law, dying to the law, it is through his attempts at keeping the law, through his attempts at, At being right in God's sight by adherence to the law. That he comes to understand that he cannot do it. There is an ending of effort of achieving and building up human merit to gain right standing before God in justification. So why is this important? I think this could be one of the most important things of of why. Why would Paul say this? Why would he die to the law? Why is it that Paul can't be satisfying in God's sight? Through adherence to the law. Is it simply because Jesus himself came and we live in a new era of salvation? I think that's true, but I think there's more than that. It's more than the fact that Jesus has come and we live in a new era of the way that God deals with his people. We live in a new covenant. There's something more to it. And it has to do with the fact that we are unable, every single one of us are unable to live a pleasing life in God's sight apart from from his justifying us by faith alone in Christ alone. We are unable. That's why Paul says that not just merely no Jew would be justified in his sight, but he actually says no flesh, no flesh, no living human can be justified in God's sight by works of the law. So Paul, in his efforts to keep the law, came to a death in himself. He dies to the law and the effect of his dying to, to the efforts of earning merit before God is that he can now live for God truly because of his faith in Christ. And so he turns and he, learned, and he looks to a righteousness that is not his own. It is an alien righteousness. So as he's going to talk about in Philippians, it is the righteousness from God that depends on faith alone. Not by works of the flesh, not by confidence in the flesh, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And through that faith in Jesus Christ now, through this justification now, Paul has been united with Christ. So this is the solution to us living holy lives now, is union with Christ. It's not reinstating the law. It's union with Jesus Christ. We are now participants, by faith alone, in his death and resurrection, which is why Paul can say in verse 20 now, he says that I have been crucified with Christ. I've been united with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is this union with Jesus Christ that all of the blessings of Christ are experienced by his people. All of the blessings that Christ has, whenever we are united with him, we now get to partake of those blessings. So not long ago, whenever I was living in Fort Worth, I had, um, I had a good friend, his name's Brad Payne, who he serves as a, a chaplain on the PGA Tour. And so because of his, his status with the PGA Tour, he gets access, all access to, to golf tournaments. He walks inside the ropes with the tour players as they walk along. He goes into their locker rooms. He goes there to, to tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, whenever I was living in Fort Worth, Brad called me up one day, and he said, Johnny, come meet me at Colonial. Colonial is a, a tournament that they have every year on the PGA Tour if you watch golf, but it's a, it's a tournament, s- sort of a regular sporting event where you've got to have a ticket to get into the tournament, and you've got to have money to buy a ticket. Well, I was in college, and I had no money to buy a ticket, but Brad says, come with me, and I said, well, okay. So I call him up whenever I show up that morning, and <clears throat> he comes out, meets me, and we start walking and we just keep walking. We go through the security checkpoint, we go past the ticket line, and we keep walking in. I go, well, that's pretty nice. You know, I'm with Brad, so I get to walk into and have access to this tournament that I otherwise wouldn't have access to, but then we keep walking. We go into the locker room with the rest of these professional golfers, and we start talking with them, and then we end up going to eat lunch with them in the clubhouse. And because of my being with Brad Payne, all of the benefits that Brad Payne had at Colonial were now mine to share with him. Because I trusted that those benefits would be mine whenever I went in with Brad. And so in the same way, it's very similar in our union with Christ in being united to Him, now all of the blessings of Jesus. What the Father says of the Son, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. His obedience, all of His obedience, the blessings of that obedience, His Sonship, His righteousness, His goodness, the Father's love for Him, all of those Blessings are ours now in Jesus Christ whenever we are united to Him by faith. So the question is then, how then are we to live the Christian life? How are we to live it? Paul says in verse 20, he says, the life that I now live I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the eye that he speaks of here is the eye that once was trusting in getting righteousness before God by all of his own efforts, trusting in his own righteousness that he can manufacture. Now that eye is no longer doing that. But he has been crucified with Christ and he now lives by faith every day in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. Y'all get this and you will be very happy and joyful Christians. We are justified by faith alone. How are we sanctified? By faith in Jesus Christ. By looking to Him. By faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. We live unto God. That is why we obey. So the next question is, what is the motivation? Right, so if the, if the law, if Paul is not going to rebuild the law, and the Jews are afraid that if you don't rebuild the law, then it's just going to be a free-for-all, What then is the motivation to be holy? What are we motivated by? What's going to motivate us to be Christians? I recently just heard a story of one pastor who was visiting um, the Great Patriotic War Museum. It's in Belarus. Belarus. And it gives sort of the Soviet perspective on World War II and what had happened and all of the things that was going on during that time whenever the Soviet Union was involved in the war. And while he was there, the tour guide told him the story about a young 22-year-old lady. Her name was, try and pronounce this right, Zina Tuntz-Nolobova. Zina Tuntz-Nolobova. She was a medical orderly for the Soviet Union. She is said to have gone out onto the field of battle and have saved single-handedly 128 Soviet soldiers. On one such occasion, she went out and she was wounded in the midst of the battlefield. And during uh, a, a hard winter, as she's out there, left... In the cold condition, she developed frostbite. She ended up losing all four of her limbs. She lost her arms and she lost her legs. Well, her life was spared and she ended up dictating um, an open letter to the Soviet soldiers. She dictated a number of letters. letters. One of them was to the Soviet soldiers of the First Baltic Front. And they were so inspired by her story. The soldiers were so inspired that they had artists get, get paints out. And for the art on the side of their tanks and on the art for the side of their planes, they wrote for Zina. For Zina Tuntz no And the sacrifice of Zena was what propelled them to keep going in the war. She dictated another letter, and it was to workers who had made the ammunition for the army as well. And she wrote this over-in letter requesting, making one request that each of, the soldier, each of the people there who were making the ammo would stay and make one extra bullet, just one. Well, this letter motivated All of the people who were there to not only just make one extra bullet at the end of the day, but they made hours worth of bullets, days worth of bullets that they gave freely, being motivated by the sacrifice of what Zena had done. Paul says that the law doesn't work. But he says, I will tell you what does work. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at him. He is the one who gave himself for us. He gave himself freely and he died in love. He didn't just lose four limbs. He didn't just risk his life for us, but he actually went to the cross and died in the place of his people so that whoever would turn from their sins and put their faith alone in Jesus Christ for his righteousness to be your righteousness would surely be saved. Jesus went to the cross and he suffered underneath the penalty for our sins, On the cross, the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ so that way the wrath can be taken away and we can be confident before God whenever we approach him by faith alone in Christ. And the thing that we need to get is that Jesus did it in love. Do you believe that this morning? If you are a Christian, do you believe that he actually did it because he loved you? Because he loved you. How great is the Father's love that he would send his only son. And in the same way that the Father loves the Son is the same way that we are loved by the Father. If we are Christ's and Christ went to the cross, he chose the cross. He wasn't co-opted to go to the cross. He chose it in love. Y'all, that's why we are to get out our paints. Go, paint paint your airplane, paint your army tank. This is for Jesus Christ. He did it in love for me. I live for him. I labor for him. I work for him. I die for him because of what he has done for me. It is that gospel that can bring us as Christians into such a condition that we can say the same things that Paul said whenever he said, and he believed this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He really thought that death was gain because he knew Jesus Christ. He loved him. One more verse. Verse 21. Paul says, and he writes, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose Paul says I do not nullify the grace of God but Peter by your very actions you are nullifying the grace of God in acting out practically that you believe that justification is by faith plus works think about it Peter think about it Galatians think about it Delray Baptist Church? What are the ways that we are tempted to add to this precious doctrine? What are the ways that we're tempted to nullify the grace of God in thinking that righteousness can be somehow attained, somehow attained through the law by mere human effort without God's intervention. Y'all, if that were true, then what is the conclusion? What does Paul conclude if that were the case? If righteousness were through the law, Christ would have died for no purpose whatsoever. But I stand here today to tell you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus did not die in vain. He died with a purpose. He died to bring us to God. He died to secure justification for his people. That if they would believe, have faith alone in Jesus Christ, they can be right with God. Y'all, I pray that this is something that we will not forget as a church. If we forget this, if we start acting contrary to what the, what the implications are for, for a doctrine like this, the effects are detrimental. Adding to Justification, by faith alone, distorts the gospel. It divides the church. It makes a mockery of God's grace. It diminishes Christ's work. I pray that we are a people that love Christ's work. That we don't diminish it. That we make much of God's grace in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, in the way that we would extend fellowship to one another, that grace is elevated, that our church is one as we hold to this doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we would be united, that we wouldn't look like the rest of the world who picks and chooses every single line to divide fellowship on, Y'all, we have a unity that transcends all of those lines. Not that those lines aren't important or that they they aren't realities, but we have something that transcends it. The unity of the spirit of the bond of peace that we have in faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would not be a people that distort the gospel, but they would would be servants who are found faithful. That we would be table servants who take this good news of Jesus Christ and we don't seek to add anything to it. That we don't seek to take anything away from it. And that we take it to a lost world that is desperately longing for grace. That needs the grace of Jesus Christ.